Welcome to the Foxy Podcast. Bi-monthly show brought to you by Freeform Freakout. Show is produced at KMSU Studios in Mankato, Minnesota. And here on the Foxy Podcast, we try to dig deeper into underground and experimental sounds of the past and present. And welcome to episode number 58 of the Foxy Podcast show. Hope you're doing well out there. And if you've been following us for over the past four and a half years or so, and through a few different name changes, you're probably well aware that this is actually the 100th episode of the podcast series that we produced. And we have a special show put together for you for this edition. We'll be talking to the writer, poet, musician, Matt Crefting, whose music you hear behind me right now. This track comes from his excellent album, Lymph Est, which came out on Kai Records last year. One of my personal favorites of the year. Keftering has been recording for well over a decade in a number of groups based out of the Northeast, including The Believers, Shakamoxen, and the long-running trio Son of Earth. His recent solo output has focused more intensely on refined sound manipulation and tape composition. And his written work has appeared in various online and print publications, and uh, Crefton's a regular contributor to The Wire magazine, and now Byron Coley's recently launched Bull Tongue Review quarterly print zine. So we're going to be talking with uh, Matt about both his writing and his music during the show. He was also kind enough to uh, put together a special mix of music to be played throughout the show that reflects some of his own interests and informs some of his work as a writer and a musician. We'll discuss that as well. But before we jump into the first interview segment, I'm going to play another track of uh, from Crafting. And this uh, first one's going to be from Son of Earth's Erotic Empire. And it's going to be called Minimum Men. Thank you. 
So aside from um, your current work uh, with writing for The Wire, uh, where else has some of your music writing appeared in either print or online publications prior to that? Um, prior to that, let's see. I mean, it was I. You know, I have my own blog, which I've done on and off for a few years. Um, I've written about music just for, for pleasure. Um, I did do a piece for uh, a non-profit poetry space around here called Flying Object in Hadley, Mass. I wrote a piece about Robert Fripp for their website. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I mean, writing about music I've done in one form or another for a really long time, um, mostly for my own pleasure. And then the wire picked it up. I mean, a lot of it has been sort of in the wake of that, actually. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, on, on the same day, I guess, you know, like the Huffington Post wanted to print my Lou Reed thing or post it, I guess. Oh, yeah, yeah. From your blog. Um, yeah. They, they posted that on their blog. Um, I've done... I did an interview with Graham uh, Lankin for Bomb Magazine, um, and then recently I've been doing stuff for Byron Coley's new Full Tongue Quarterly, which is actually probably the most fun music writing. Yeah, I, you know, I still um, haven't picked up a copy of that, but I, I, I like the idea that it's not just sort of bound to music, that you're kind of free to critique anything, right? Yeah, it's kind of amazing. I mean, he really only, his initial email that he sent to the contributors list was just as long as it was a review of anything (laughs) and it was in I mean he sort of gave us a vague word count but we really can write about whatever we want Mm -hmm. Um, you know and given that I I mean the uh, what's the subtitle full tongue review a quarterly journal of post rock cultural pluralism Mm -hmm. you know and that post rock cultural pluralism is something I knew comes from Richard Meltzer. Right. Um, from his culture book. And so I, knowing that, knowing Byron, I, I, I just took it as license to write as crazily as I wanted to. So I wrote a fake review of a Brian Ferry show that didn't happen. <laughs> in and the sp- and that's a, definitely in the spirit of Richard Meltzer there, right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, and and uh, I made a fake Sun Ra review. I reviewed the process of making my own bed. <laughs> Um, and it's just amazing the stuff that other people do as well. I mean, Lisa Carver reviewing obsolete furniture. Um, Tom Given, who's another friend of me and Byron's, reviewed uh, an ebook. So I mean, it's like that's a really sort of fun, fertile thing to be a part of. Right, and um, it, and it's nice to kind of it you know it harkens back to the days of you know print zines and and having that mm-hmm. out there, and. Um, I mean, was that something for you as a writer that you were, I mean, where you kind of became interested in writing about music from picking up a lot of like the zines that were floating around and were the late eighties, early nineties and what have you? Um, you know, it's funny. I always sort of disliked reading about music. I always loved music as a kid and I didn't really like reading about it very much. Um, until kind of late in life, I guess I must've been 20 or 21 when I read Lester Bangs, you know, which is kind of a typical mm-hmm. typical music writer story, I, I read Lester Bangs and then I had, knew I had to do more of it. <laughs> um, 
and so then I got you know, I got more into sort of like the that school of writing Bangs, Grill Marcus, Cautious, uh, Meltzer, stuff like that. I mean, that was also when I met Byron, and we kind of became friendly. So, you know, he was a figure that pushed me in that direction. Uh, to sure, extent. right, right. Well, I know as that... far as the zine culture, I never really, you know, I knew about that stuff and was familiar, but mostly from a distance. Sure. Yeah. Well, I know that you had done some like poetry chapbooks and stuff even recently stuff for Kendra Steiner editions and I think earlier on for like in Glass Eye Books that's Byron's uh, publication yep. right? yeah so yep. I mean in terms of your own development then as a writer were you maybe first a little bit more drawn to like poetry as opposed to like music writing or more long form critical writing no I, no, I would tell, I'd actually say the opposite I was sort of more always naturally drawn to uh Critical writing, or at least, yeah, at least prose. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I like a lot of abstract, you know, what you could call more poetic prose as well. But um, I think the first thing that really, I mean, I remember writing like a book review. I was probably eleven or twelve or something. It was *The Old Man in the Sea* by Ernest Hemingway, and about three quarters of the way through the thing, I really got this jolt. I was excited to be. I was learning more about the book by writing about it than I was able to glean just by reading it. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's sort of a moment that sticks with me. I, I, I can't even remember a single line of that book now. But um, <laughs> yeah, poetry was something that probably came out of prose for me. The more abstract prose I read, then I realized, oh, this is almost like poetry. And then I kind of, poetry is a different beast. It's really much more difficult for me. Well, you had also run your own label for a while. Was it Apostasy Recordings? Yeah, yeah. Apostasy. And and um, that's, I mean, I think that kind of, I don't know if it's officially put to rest or on hiatus, but uh, is that something that you have ever considered, like, reactivating again? Um, I mean, Apostasy, well, it's kind of funny because it's like, it's really, it was never my label, mm-hmm. per se. It was, it was a Son of Earth related concerns. So it was me and John Shaw and Aaron Rosenblum. And it was really, I mean, when we were first starting Son of Earth, we just wanted to have some cassettes to sell it. Shows, or, I mean, actually, mostly gave them away. <laughs> but we yeah. just wanted a label name to put on those things. Um, yeah. And then over the years, we sort of grouped together and did more official-type projects. Um, and I wouldn't say it's dormant, but, I mean, like Son of Earth, it's moves at its own snail's pace. It, it's always there if you need it. Is that a Exactly, yeah. <laughs> if you need an um, outlet to put out some of that stuff. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and, you know, now Aaron has put out stuff himself under uh, Hank the Herald Angel recordings. John has started Glad Tree Press, which is probably the, actually the most active of our individual labels. I've got Silver lining, which is, has almost nothing on it. But <laughs> what have what have you hoping. put out on silver lining? Oh, I put out a cassette of myself, a split cassette I did with Aaron. So that was technically a split cassette between Silver Lining and Hank the Herald Angel. Um, I've got another cassette of mine that I've been actually sitting in a dubbing machine at Hampshire College right now, and. and 
I'm embarrassingly behind on a Bill Nace and Dilloway duo cassette. Oh, okay. I told them I would put out. Cool. Um, and there's also a, actually Silver Lining One is a as yet unpublished book of haikus written by my younger brother. Oh, so it's I mean, it's it's really your own personal private label essentially. It's so private. Some of the stuff doesn't exist. <laughs> Some of it never comes out. You just keep right. it to yourself, right? <laughs> I mean, you know, the work is done. It's just the releasing bit. It's like, oh, man. <laughs> yeah. Please. Well, one of the more recent pieces that you had written for The Wire, um, it was a part of that liberating sound and music edition. And you mm-hmm. you had written this essay dealing with uh, more or less playback devices and how that liberated sound. Um, mm-hmm. And at the, at the I, I apologize, I have to quote this here, and I always hate quoting no, lengthy things, but you wrote this part where you say, playback freed music from its fleeting inferiority, allowing it to be repeated verbatim, and in each repetition for its meaning to change in the ears and hearts of the listeners, even as the content remains the same. And I'm wondering, you know, like that idea, is that something that you've kind of, work through with your own music and you know like tape works uh things like that um i don't know if i've worked through it so much as it's something that i've just that i i realized as as, as kind of a fact um and then have used that knowledge to build a repertoire of methods i guess mm-hmm. um you know i mean one of the things i i've never gotten over the childhood impulse to watch movies over and over again <laughs> i still kind of do that you know i do the same thing with records if you really like a record just play it over and over again and that has not always been possible you know mm-hmm. if you see a live show and you don't have a recorder on you or if you see a live show and it's 1792 that's your only shot at it you mm-hmm. know so it's me will have to change in the in in your memory. Um, but then understanding that about, you know, recording technology is allowing this, the exact same thing to happen over and over again. But then you have to ask questions of, is it the same thing? I don't know. You know, I'll, I'll feel differently today when I listen to this song than I did yesterday. And so it, you know, things tend to accumulate different kinds of associations. Um, and that's, Probably in somewhere know that at the crux of a lot of what I like to do. Right, I'm thinking like with just your work with tapes. I mean, uh, mm-hmm. the materiality of it, the fact that there's that element of decomposition over time, right. where the sounds are sort of being washed away, um, and how that plays into the experience of listening. I guess. Um, yeah, I mean that's ex- sort of exactly what I'm going for. Is this. I love the moment when, you know, I mean, like if you recognize something, like on a, you know, if a car drives by with a song that you know playing, or if you walk by a store and they have the doors open and you hear a split second of something, and it, that, it takes a, it takes a, like a second. It's only the moment between when you realize I recognize this and then to be able to name it. Mm-hmm. And sometimes there's, you know, that you never get there. Know, a fragment of a guitar line will come into my head while I'm showering, getting ready for work or something, and then 
I'll spend the rest of the morning playing it in my head over and over and over again, trying to figure it out. And I like that process of trying to remember something is something that I think I'm pretty interested in dwelling in, mm-hmm. I think in both writing and music. Um, I think it's a really interesting conscious state because it's nostalgic and frustrating in equal measure. <laughs> <laughs> and then the satisfaction of when you actually do recognize something. Is, I mean, I love when I use a snippet of something in a live show or something, and somebody comes up to me right afterwards and knows what it was that I used. I think that's great. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not willfully obscuring things. Right, right. Well, I want to jump into here, like the first set of music, and you've picked out a bunch mm. of stuff to spread throughout the show. And this first set, I know we're starting with somebody who's at the top of the list for you. You're you're a fan of Bowie, <laughs> no doubt about it. Along with Lou Reed, I know that. Yeah. But uh, you you got here picked out. We've got Bowie, uh, Gill, Jay Woolman, and then White House. How we get from Bowie to White House in one set, I'll never know. But we're gonna pull it off here. Okay. <laughs> uh, so explain. Some, these are some of these artists that, I mean, obviously have uh, played a part in, you know, your musical development, your use, your musical interests over the years. I mean, it's, uh, man, how you get from Bowie to White House in my house is not a very, it's a not... very significant jump. Right. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, the, the Bowie tracks, I mean, I could talk a lot about what I like about Bowie. I, I'm, I mean, yeah, well, first of all, I was always attracted to his sexy voice when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's been a really fun project to sort of research obsessively. There's a lot of different Bowies. There's a lot of different versions of different records, you know. So it's it's almost served as a training ground of sorts of how you go about familiarizing yourself with somebody's career. So um, he has that interest in me. I mean, but... The grouping of these three things um, take a little bit of time to explain the Bowie track a little bit because it sets up the other two. Um, it's called The Mirror, and I like that it's a really sort of sweet, lilting demo from 67, so it's this lo-fi, hissy sort of thing. Um, and by choosing that one, I was able to reference both the group Mirror, uh, which Christoph Eamon and Andrew Chalk, which is one of the few groups by which I have every album, even all the CDRs and seven inches and stuff. Right, right. Um, and they're just a, one of my favorites. Um, and also the film, The Mirror, um, the Tarkovsky thing, which was a sort of formative thing for me to see and figure out how overlapping, seemingly disparate um scenarios could form a very moving whole without having to actually even know fully what's going on. Um, but also, I mean, sonically, it leads into the other two, because Jill Holman uh, is really, he's what Henri Chopin referred to as the poet of the breath, and I think there's a lot of breath to be heard in the lo-fi sound of a Bowie 67 demo recording. Mm-hmm. Um, and the White House thing, a rector, I same kind of thing. It's, it's, it's use of space, it's sort of um, compositional patience for a group that has a reputation as being an extremely violent, harsh sort of a, attack type group. I actually find a rector to be, or I mean, a lot of this stuff, really patient mm-hmm. um, and using tension and space, which is uh, another form of breath. 
right? There's sort of just this, as a way to there's like a create wa- atmosphere. Sure. Sorry to interrupt. I was going to say no, yeah, they have that kind of just overwhelming wash of sound. Like you mm-hmm. can get kind of lost in what they do. Right. Um, you know, and that is actually the quality that I was drawn to in in like uh, John Coltrane's Live at the Village Vanguard Again album. Mm-hmm. To me, I could just when I heard it when I was God, I was 15 or something when I first heard it, and the, I was amazed by the amount of space opened up by that music. Just the, it sounded like the instruments were far away from each other, even though I know they weren't in yeah. that club. You know, and it just you could hear the whole room in a way, and I just loved it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it sort of abstracted my ability to uh, organize sounds in my head as I heard them. So that's the to me that's the connection between these three tracks. Well, let's let's do it. We can hear this unfold then, starting with uh, David Bowie and the Mirror. Wash your face before your faded makeup makes a mark. The mirror will watch over you. Fear will never cause a back your face and chase the dark. The mirror's hung up on you Don't be lost, your friends, and your reflections It's auto-directional Poor Harlequin, you're quite an exception Fade trooper dog on the downer uh. Gay Harlequin Doesn't believe in you Doesn't believe it's true Such a downer
Okay, getting back to, I guess, some some of your written work, and you had mentioned um, that you do maintain a, a personal blog. It's called uh, Crafting Moon. And uh, one of my... Well, Crafting Moon Dawn. Moon Dawn, thank you. Named, named after the Klaus Schultz album. Yeah. <laughs> um, but one of my favorite pieces, aside from uh, the Lou Reed bit that you did, um, was the story that you uh, wrote about Arthur Doyle right around the, right after he had passed away where mm-hmm. you had recounted uh, the first time that you had hosted him at Hampshire College and I thought it was it was a, f- a fun thing to read because one it kind of took you through all the stuff that you were involved in you know in college and booking shows mm-hmm. and things like that and then this figure like Arthur Doyle who was you know having seen him perform kind of eccentric you know a, a unique guy but then leading a classroom setting through his like <laughs> a way of improvisation. What what was that like? I'm just thinking that had to be quite a trip. Oh man, um, only at Hampshire, <laughs> you know, which is a. I mean, it's where I work now, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was the kind of thing. I'm kind of at a loss for words, actually, for how. There's, there, I mean, when I say in the piece, which I haven't read in a long time um, since I wrote it, but I think I say something to the effect that it was the kind of educational experience I will never have again. Yeah. I, you know, that that day in that class was so wild. Because, um, you know, Margot Edwards, who was the professor, was, um, she had studied with Cecil Taylor. He was in that group. A bunch of the records got reissued a few years ago. The pyramids. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so she had kind of a, a knowledge of, of you know, sort of working, active, participatory knowledge of um, more radical jazz music. And so we proposed to her that we could bring this, this guy. I mean, she didn't know Doyle stuff, um, but it, I mean, so she had a pretty decent hold on what it might be like nobody else did <laughs> that's what i was wondering um, i mean like we're, we're amazing none of your classmates aside from you and the the son of earth guys were familiar with arthur doyle i'm guessing no well you know that's not, jeremy starpoli who at the time was called floyd starpoli he a trombone player from around here he knew the doyle stuff because he was into free music but everybody else was much more on the kind of I mean, they were in, it was in the, the class was called the nature and practice of improvisation. Um, so you had people who were into fusion, into straight jazz, into uh, they were into the kind like you know string band type music that you could jam on that okay. kind of stuff. Yeah. You know, so yeah. when we bring Arthur Doyle in, and I mean he he walks in like he's from another planet <laughs> to them. Um, and he, I mean, the, the say what you will about it. I mean, every mind was blown. Mm-hmm. Including, it was it was incredible. But that was the kind of thing we were able to really do a lot of there. Um, you know, I mean, I used to have answering machine messages from Joe McPhee. Mm-hmm. Had him come play, um, and we, we booked so many shows with a meager budget, which is uh, unfortunately Hampshire's story. Yeah, but we, I mean, we had Michael Hurley there twice. Doyle came twice. Um, we hosted one of the anti-nationals nights with, uh, idea fire company and Graham and, um, K 
a Salvatore, the no-neck offshoot. They own no-neck themselves as well. Um, Matt Valentine, PG6, Red Bull, Corsano. And, was, um, and this was all at was the flywheel, right? It was the, the flywheel was the, was our alternate space. Yeah. Okay. Um, you know that 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 was sort of a local arts organization, and when we were doing a lot of booking at Hampshire, we also did a lot of booking there. So, okay. I mean, we were able to finagle things, but you know, we had Eugene Chadbourne at Hampshire one night and flywheel the next. Okay. Um, and, and that's a that's, that's a kind of how we get to know Byron and Thurston and Ken and Jay Matthews and sure. That's a pretty heavy roster. I mean, traveling through. I mean, you were. I mean, the Northeast has always had a pretty active uh, underground scene. I, and I, I use that term very loosely. I, I yeah. but but I mean, yeah, you were kind of there. And I guess m- maybe building off that, you know, when you look back at those, uh, you know, formative years of of playing music and organizing shows and all of that, that kind of energy of that time. What what keeps you interested and motivated in, in taking part? And both, you know, writing about music and creating music of your own right now. That's, you know, Mark Masters asked a similar question in his uh, he, did, he has that blog where he called Two Hundred Words. Yep. He writes two hundred words, and then the artist writes two hundred words. And his his one about me opens up with something like, "Matt Crafton has heard so much music; it's surprising he's able to make any of his own," <laughs> which is not really true if you know me. But, um, <laughs> because I feel like I still feel ignorant. Um, I guess, and maybe that's it. Maybe, maybe that is my motivating factor is that no matter how much I find out, there's always something else to find out about. Right. Right. Um, and every time you think that the underground is dead or that there's, or I mean, shit, even if like, if you think pop music is dead, you hear a great pop song or something, you know, um, and I, I, you know, I just don't see the well drying up. You know, I, mean, I think, which is different than, I mean, obviously there are trends, which I think have diluted the um, quality of certain things at certain times. But you know, do we really need another ambient synth record? I don't know. <laughs> but um, that's, I mean, that's the nature of cultural trends in general. I think things get their innovations, no matter how slight. They catch on. They get propagated to a degree that they might then become irrelevant or, or formulaic, and then a new bunch of stuff has to come along. And you know, and it's God, I mean, I could never hear any new music again and still spend the rest of my life finding stuff in the past that I don't know about. Right, right. Um, and without it, life seems rather bland at times. Mm-hmm. Well, or at least. Uh, Maybe not bland. Maybe just uh, too too painful. Right, right, exactly. <laughs> not know, as colorful, at least, right? It's uh, well. It's, it's this is my my uh, tonic. You know, it's just like keeps me sane at the end of the day. Yeah. Well, speaking of like discovering um, the artists from the past, someone that was fairly new to me, at least in the last year or so, I've heard about him is uh, uh, is it Henry Bertoya. Mm. And uh, you actually Harry just, Bertoia. Harry, yes, I'm sorry, Harry yeah, Bertoia. Yeah. And um, one of the latest pieces that you wrote for the Wire uh, was a feature on, on his work, and you had actually gone down uh, to his like the farm in Pennsylvania where he houses a lot of those amazing sculptures. And I was kind of wondering, you know, 
you know, hearing those in person versus what's captured on those recordings. I mean, what what was that like, or what is that like? Oh boy. Um, well, I mean, those Bertoya records were ones I actually I didn't really know the records that well when I got the assignment to do that. I had heard them. Um, I had seen most of them at one point or another. But I dove into them and listened to the records a lot before I went down to the barn, which is maintained by his son, Val, and a sculptor who lives below it named Melissa Strausser. Um, and so I felt like I did a fair amount of prep for that, and I was kind of overwhelmed when I was actually in the room with them, um, totally unexpectedly. Because there's something about watching them move while they make those sounds, and certainly watching many of them move together and in different patterns. You know, it's sort of the cumulative aspect of the experience. I, um, I didn't think it was as loud as it, as it was going to be in my mind. Right. Um, but it was much more moving. So there's more of a um, visual uh, component uh, that he, obviously he was playing on too, like a dynamic and a spatial vision. one. Yeah, you know, I mean, I think there's something about being in the room with the sounds as they travel through that air and not the air that comes out of your stereo speakers. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, and that stuff I think is going to be reissued soon. I think there was a slight delay, if I'm not mistaken, on the record. well. I mean, yeah, there it's going to be a initially at least um, you know there's 11 LPs so it'll be an 11 CD box on important records um, which I think will be out towards the end of the summer you know the initial idea was to have it come out in March to coincide with the centennial of Victoria's birth but um, it seems like John from the important just keeps getting access to more and more stuff and so he's thinking you know it's, it's worth the delay to put cooler things in the box. Okay. I think that's a good thing. Yeah. And then I think, you know, on the heels of that, he'll be going back. I mean, Bertoya has you know, 11 LPs that got edited down, but there are almost 400 reel-to-reel cassettes or reel-to-reel tapes, tape boxes that um, hardly anyone has ever heard. So John's going to digitize those, archive them, and then restart this on ambient label. Okay. Issue kind of the best, you know, the best stuff out of there. So there could be some uh, major box sets even following <laughs> in the wake of this. Yeah, right? yeah. <laughs> I, w- I would imagine. Well, um, let's continue on with uh, some more music that you had picked out. In this set, uh, oh. I feel like you're taking me back to my youth a little bit uh, here, uh, <laughs> starting with uh, some Jerry Lee Lewis. And uh-huh. then uh, and we're going to kind of segue from that into Mandy Morton and Springens, and then some John Lee mm-hmm. Hooker. So are these are these things for you also kind of something that like you grew up with this music to some extent? Um, certainly grew up with Jerry Lee Lewis. My dad was, I mean, that was one of the first music lessons, if you will, that I ever received was my dad telling me that Elvis was a better performer, that Jerry Lee Lewis was a better musician. Yeah. <laughs> making that <laughs> distinction, which right. I, at this stage in my life, I don't give a shit about, but, um, <laughs> but the, I mean, the Jerry Lee Lewis thing I chose because, because of the book Hellfire by Nick Tosh's, um, you know, to bring us back to music writing, I thought that when I read that, I always liked Jerry Lewis growing up, 
but then when I read that book, you know, I had a few records too. After I read the book, I at this point I probably have seventy five Jerry Lewis LPs. Oh jeez. Um, just because of the way that you know, Tasha saw a certain thing in that life story and laid it out in that book, and I can't help but separate the two now, or or not separate the two. I mean, like I I hear it, I hear that book when I hear the records. Uh-huh. Um, so I think that's again another interesting sort of back and forth thing that happens with music and the way that we talk about it is that it gets connected to moments or pieces of writing or you know, books or whatever. Um, the Spriggan's track, I got to be honest, it's because my name is in it. Um, <laughs> oh, according to Matt, <laughs> there you go. Yeah. <laughs> I guess that didn't even occur to me, yeah. <laughs> but that's the kind of thing I do. I look for these little things. I mean, you know, I think my birthday is mentioned in somewhere in Hellfire, December 4th. There was some, God, it was December 4th. It might have been the day that they did the the Million Dollar Quartet recording with Carl Perkins and Jerry Lee and Elvis okay. and Johnny Cash. Um, you know, but the, like things like that, are, I'm always looking for them. You know, yeah. it, what might seem like a coincidence to someone else to me is often I'm, like I'll follow that road all the way to the end. Yeah, um, and you, so that's why. And I mean, I love Mandy Morton and Spriggins. You, you're clearly a person who spent time making mixtapes back in the day, right? Oh man, you wouldn't. I mean, that was I would I would make them just to make them. Right. I would listen to them again. Because <laughs> that's the type of doing it. I can tell by listening to your connections here. You've done a lot of this. You've you've thought I, through this. It, <laughs> it is one of one of life's few pleasures deserving of the name. <laughs> Um, <laughs> I really believe that sequence. You know, yeah, one of my favorites. Um, and uh, the John Lee Hooker thing is interesting as well because for I mean this is another one of those associative kind of uh, instances for me where I I first of all there's three vocal tracks laid on top of one another so I always like that as a you know, it's a very studio-based recording, and the blues tend to often carry with them the foul stench of authenticity. You know, the, the, somehow this music is more real than other music because mm-hmm. it was made by people from a certain socioeconomic class. And I, 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 I think that that's nonsense. Um, and, and, it, it, and it's explicated in, in this case, but I mean... It's an amazing record, and it's all the more amazing. I mean, straight John Lee Hooker records are great, too, but this one has this layering of vocals that's it's so woozy and so kind of uh, disorienting that um, it relates to stuff that I like about tape music in that sense, and also in a writing sense, for whatever reason, even though it's mentioned nowhere in the books, this track always reminds me of... Uh, Frederick actually a fan's note at something in the sort of mournful atmosphere of it. I'm sorry, what um, what was the reference that you made there? To what? Uh, Frederick Exley's book, oh. A Fan's Note. Oh, okay, okay. Um, which is, a, that's another book I've read over and over again. Mm-hmm. And this track, you know, is a sort of mental soundtrack to the movie that plays in my mind when I read that book. Cool, well, let's... um. Let's jump into these tracks and uh, starting with this one here from uh, Jerry Lee Lewis. Morning's come and Lord, my mind 
aching, yes it is Sunshine, standing quietly at my door Just like the dawn, my heart is silently breaking With my tears It goes tumbling to the floor Once again The whole town will be talking Yes, they will Lord, I've seen The pity that's in their eyes They could never understand It's her sorrow, it's not a man And no matter what they say We know she tried Baby's packed her soft things And she's left me She's left me And I know She didn't mean To make me cry It's not her heart Lord It's her mind She didn't mean To be unkind Why she even Woke me up To say goodbye It's not a heart Lord, it's her mind She didn't mean To be unkind Why she even Woke me up To say goodbye Goodbye, baby
Alfred, so I wanted to kind of, I guess, shift gears a little bit here and, and talk more about the, the music that you've been making uh, both recently mm-hmm. in the past. And I guess I wanted to start by asking you, we've talked a little bit about your tape works. When did you really start using tapes as, I guess, your instrument of choice? Um, I have to kind of say that they were always, or certainly my first instrument of choice. Mm-hmm. Um, because when I was a kid and my younger brother got interested in playing electric guitar and at the time, you know, we had, you know, each had tape deck boom boxes in our bedrooms. And so when the family would leave the house, I would duck into his room and just make sounds on his guitar feed, you know, feed him back and, mm-hmm just making strange sounds and I would record them on one machine and then I would play the tape back and record a new layer on the other one. Um, and I'm sure, you know, it's sort of a long time ago, so I don't remember what my actual intentions were. I was probably trying to make the guitar the hero of the thing, but it became evident really quickly, you know, as we all know that the more you play tapes back into one another, this is before I had heard Alvin Lucia on sitting in a room or any, anything like that, um, you know, the, the quality of the tape became the primary sound that you heard. You know, it was sort of degradation of, of sounds as they were layered um, and played back. Mm-hmm. And so it sort of always stuck around like that. Something I always used as I moved forward. I always played tapes to Son of Earth. Um, and then really, I mean, in the last, whatever, five years or so, um, the way that started was actually because I, you know, the, my gear, such as it was that I used for Son of Earth was so cheap and so disposable that I had actually lost most of it at mm. shows over the years. Mm-hmm. And so I had nothing. And so I just started making tapes of myself talking, tapes of me making eggs, tapes of you know, watching television, and then that grew into, you know, and, that, it was, and I just had to use that because I got asked to do a solo show. I had no, <laughs> I had no instrument. <laughs> and then it's kind of become the language that I've used for you know, the past five years or so. Well, yeah, you, you're talking about how you recorded things. I mean, in terms of gathering, like, especially the things that appeared on maybe your, your last record, especially I'm thinking of the Kai release, uh, you mm-hmm. know, in terms of gathering your source material, are you someone that like carries recording devices around? Like you're one of these field recordists who we could see, you know, walking by the river with your earphones on and a big uh, microphone, <laughs> you know, boom mic in hand. Or are yeah, you no. are, are you more like you like to like sift through pre-recorded material and things like that? Um, I wouldn't really say it's either or. I mean, I do. It's funny, you know. The, the tie record gets mentioned in this context because Graham and I were visiting Willie Lane and Franny Arnold in Philadelphia a few years ago. Maybe more than that now. Um, but we were we got out of the car in the street and there was all this great street noise and the trumpet in the distance. You know, some, somebody playing for change. It just sounded so amazing. And Graham sort of turned to me and he said, oh, don't you wish that you carried a quarter around at all times for moments like this? Mm-hmm. I was like, yeah, that's right, that's right. Um, but 
I, which isn't to say that I don't do that. I mean, I do carry something around me sometimes. I love taking a tape machine to parties, try to tape sounds. You get some interesting stuff from that, some not. You have to listen through hours and hours of, you know, ridiculous. Drunken theories. Yes, I mean, so (laughs) stupid. Unless you're partying with people who are really in the know, you know. (laughs) Greg Kelly always would pick up my tape machine and stuff it in his mouth or hit the pause button or something like that. Um, But, you know, I mean, and actually, I would actually treat a lot of the sound sounds the same way. You know, if I'm watching a movie or if I'm listening to an old, cheap classical record or something and I hear something that I like, I'll reach for the recorder and and use it then. Um, So I wouldn't say it's either or. And I think that that lack of a, you know, certainly, God, I'm not, I don't have a boom mic on a, you know, next to a river trying to (laughs) capture the sound of a water beetle or something like that. Um, You're not working (laughs) for like... Much more interested, uh, like like a poor recording of a, you know, somebody walking down the steps in an old movie, something like that. Right, right. Well, given uh, your your written work, you know, that we talked about both as uh, a poet, a critic, um, do you have a desire to sort of bring together uh, the two things that you do? I mean, like more, or more interjecting more text-based ideas into the tape work that you've been doing? Um, you know, I've, I've tried a few times, especially a few live things I did about 10 years ago or so would be, I would either read while tapes were playing or read and then play tapes or, you know, play tapes and sing acapella, you know, and when I listen to certain, there has to be a reason for it. I don't know that I'm looking for that reason, mm-hmm. um, actively, but I, you know, I tend to find that text can often distract from the sonic bedding upon which it is placed. Um, or vice versa, you know. So, I, I don't think it's out of the question that I would not do that. I mean, it's, you know, I mean, I do, I've experimented with it a lot. Right. Um, recording my own voice. And, you know, that stuff is sort of more just for me. You know, I mean, like when uh, it was William Burroughs' 100th birthday, I know, I mean, I know he likes Denton Welch. I like Denton Welch. That's where I got the Limfest title from. Mm hmm. So I just I went in my bedroom and recorded me reading Denton Welch and did a cut up of it, you know, using Burroughs methods. But that was just for like I yeah I wouldn't put that up on SoundCloud or on a record. Or right. Anything like that. You can just say that that's that's a release on your uh, in-house imprint that you were mentioning earlier. It's it's, <laughs> right. it's, it's, it's number a, number eight, but it'll never be released. Silver lining number eight. It doesn't even have a label on it. Like. That cassette is, I mean, it's probably somewhere around here. It says a, a little red sticker on it, and I know that that's a Ben Welch yeah. one. It's an edition of one. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there's many, many of those in my life. <laughs> well, I mean, how about, I mean, I, I mentioned, you know, like doing text-based work. You know, you had released a record. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, several years back now on a static piece, which was songs mm-hmm. where you were fronting a band, an honest to goodness rock band, and uh, cover songs. Uh, is there a desire to return to doing something like that, working in a more uh, group oriented setting at all? Um, perhaps. 
you know, it's funny because like that thing happened the way everything else happens. There was no, it was a series of circumstances that led to a different circumstance wherein that was produced. Um, you know, I mean, that was more that Thurston and Andrew Kesson, who were, you know, the sort of at the time the two driving forces behind ecstatic peace, they had seen me play in the Believers a bunch of times, um, and I think that Thurston wanted me to do a record of electronics and singing. And it sort of morphed into this thing where I ended up in a proper studio or in, or in this, uh, my friend John Townsend's attic studio recording just covers. I mean, in a way that's like you know, covers as, as ready-made is something that I'm interested in. You know, that was a, connection that Brian Ferry drew cover songs to Duchamp mm-hmm. um, and so there was that kernel there and then from that we ended up doing one live tour with the Sunburn guys behind me and then that kind of morphed into this other band that we had called Rubber Leather which was, nobody, <laughs> nobody who isn't around the Pioneer Valley ever heard that mm-hmm. um and then you know it kind of lost interest for me in the in the face of doing more of this sort of solitary lonely tape work um but I wouldn't say that i'm not that I'm uninterested in going back to it right because i I especially like the fact that it was so out of character for almost everybody involved right yeah i mean it, um, it that hyper nostalgic really earnest poorly rehearsed covers album. <laughs> It, yeah, it doesn't fit in with the rest of your, uh, the body of work that you've done. I mean, it does truly yeah. stand out. Well, let me, I'm going to put you on the spot. What If you had to re- pick out like three cover songs right now that you knew you wanted, like if you got that group back together, what would be at like the top of the heap? Like what would be the three like, cover songs that you want to do? <laughs> that's a lot of pressure, I realize. No, that's fine. I mean, I would definitely put... Um... Jerry Lee Lewis, she even woke me up to say goodbye on there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just for to have fun, I, w- <laughs> I would love to do uh, Mendocino, Sir Doug, Sir Douglas Quintet. Oh, okay. Um, and God, I'm, I mean, I'm pacing back and forth in front of my record show. I'm starting <laughs> to sweat now that you've asked me this question. I know that, that's a um, lot of pressure. I, I apologize. I was kind of wanted to do a like a you know if, if I could get. Mascus to sit in again, do like a real kind of heavy metal version of uh, heavy metal in my in my world that probably isn't very heavy. Um, <laughs> but Stevie Wonder's maybe your baby with and, with Jay uh, with Jay Mascus on lead guitar. Yeah, <laughs> put a new a new spin on that, huh? Yeah, I mean he was so funny when we did that the take of Lucille that's on that record. Because mm-hmm. I just asked, I told him he should just solo over the whole thing, and then we would cut bits out later. Mm-hmm. You know, because he he only wanted to play at certain intervals and spots. But now he should just play over the whole thing. But then I just left the whole take on there because he he was <laughs> he went so hard. Yeah, the whole time. That <laughs> um, was pretty fun. I mean, I don't know. There's probably a, a million songs I would like to cover. Right. Right. Because, I mean, part of what I like about that is the fantasy of projecting yourself into 
the persona of someone else. I mean, which is a big part of what I like about Bowie. It's a part of what I like about using the same tapes over and over again. It's, you know, it's just you know, recontextualization. It's right. possible, so why, why not do it? Well, let's uh, let's continue into some other songs that you have picked sure. out here, and you got another uh, set of three tracks here. We we're starting off with uh, Claire Thomas and uh, was it Suzanne Vesey? Uh, then you get you do have a William S. Burroughs track picked out here, and then uh, G. Park, who you had recently mm-hmm. played with uh, in your area. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. The G. Park show was great. Uh, it was kind of funny. I mean, given my level of coincidence, um, I had been looking at a seven CDR box set in an edition of '77. All the early G. Park sets collected, and I've been looking for it for some time. And just just found a copy of it, showed up, and then two days later I got an email from Susanna from Monavent asking me to play a show with G Park. So strange. So that seemed that seemed like the you know, the, the stars were aligned for that one, so how could I subsequently leave a G Park track off of uh, this mix? Um but I mean G Park I really like because the you can almost never remember what it sounds like. No matter how many times I played these records, they're always surprising. They seem to really fleeting quality, mm-hmm. heavily atmospheric. I like that. Um, Burroughs thing. I mean, I've sort of been over a little bit about my my Burroughs obsession. I mean, I can't imagine what my life would be like had I not read Naked Lunch at fourteen and the job at fifteen. Oh, well, you um, you were ready for that at fourteen, huh? I was. Man, I was I couldn't. I mean, it was it changed the process of reading for me forever. Yeah, I don't know if I could have handled that at fourteen. I would <laughs> I would have been freaked out. I think. And hey, I mean, I, I and again, that was Burroughs is what I spent my entire final year at Hampshire writing about. Oh, okay, um, yeah. And you know, name me another place that will let you do that. <laughs> um, it was amazing. Uh, and then. What's before that? Oh, Claire Thomas, which is really actually Philip Sanderson from the Stormbugs. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I believe is credited as Nancy on the CD reissue. But that one I like. It's a really simple kind of almost like music for airports level demonstration of a, you know, it's voice fed through an echo. And I also like it because there's a fake name involved. You know, he's right. <laughs> Philip Sanderson is adopting this other persona. Yep. So, um, so that, so that, you know, those are that's kind of where that fits into my scheme. Right. Well, well what release was this again? The the Claire Thomas or this Philip Sanderson track was that on a like a reissue thing? Uh, I mean, it's, it's been reissued on CD, reprint, um, okay. and originally it was on reprint is the name of the that mm-hmm. and I can't remember I mean originally it was on um, Snatch Tapes so, right the label that they were at yeah. Thomas yeah okay well let's uh, well, let's play this one then this is the uh, right. Sanderson or Claire Thomas one here it's called Bright Waves
Rose Bill. Up in the lake. How to do it? Overturn Billy. Rose Bill. Overturn Billy. Over. The stale and the engine. Morning. The stale. The beginning. There was no Yanam will me warning. The stale and the your yari and the yari and the hill bound him yari your yari and Billy will in the desolate mark. There was no yam warning. The stale and the your yari and the yari and the hill bound him yam warning. And the bound him yam yawning. The well smell of late morville bound him yam yawning. The stale and the yam your yari and the yari and the hill bound him yam yari your yari and Billy well in the desolate mark. There was no yam yawning. The stale and the yam your yari. And the yari, and the hill bound him yam yawning. And the bound him yam yawning. The well smell of late morville bound him yam yawning. Up in the lake. How to do it, Jimmy? Overturn Billy. Rose Bill. Overturn Billy. Over to How to do it, dreams of Billy? Well bound him yam yawning. The stale and the be the dreams of Billy. Well, late Morville bound him yam yawning. Well, smell of late Morville bound him yam yawning. The stale smell of late Morville bound him yam yawning. Yawn, yawn, yawn. Smell of silver smoke of dreams. The smoke rose Bill M thirteen. In the light, smuck it, speed in the light, smuck it, son. Oh, now will tell you it was no word, sure you can. Eon, eon, forget silver smoke of dreams. In the light, smuck it, oh, ban. In the late, oh, summer will. Exit, the state, oh, summer will. The flight, on them, son. In the big light, in the big light, great exactly how to. Yeah. Eight more, eight more, eight more, and over two. 
Will you, it was no words, Eon, 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 M13, Rosebill Island. M13, Rosebill Island. 13, Bill Island. M13, light smuckets, in the light smuckets, up in the light smuckets, old summer will. Old summer will to flight, to flight, to stay am to flight, to stay am. Warning, getting will bow. Warning, getting will bound him. Warning, warning, getting will bound him. Sun, sun.
Aside from um, occasionally, I guess, contributing to like Idea Fire Company, are are you still involved in any like group oriented projects uh, like you were in the past? Like, you know, you had mentioned the Believers and Son of Earth. Heck, you were in a lot of groups back in the day. Um, Is that anything that you're still doing? Um, I mean, Son of Earth is always happening. It's just a matter of the three of us getting in the same room and waving sheets of paper around or eating tortilla chips. (laughs) <laughs> um, you know, we've got an instant event. Yep. So anytime, <laughs> right, you, you anytime you guys are together, that essentially is a Son of Earth like rehearsal or performance. Oh yeah, for sure at this point. And if we have a show, we have to actually talk about it, <laughs> which is weird. Yeah. <laughs> but at this point, I mean, some of the shows actually have involved laying tortilla chips on a floor and eating them, <laughs> or. Filling bowls full of water and drinking them, spitting them back into the bowls and drinking them again. You know, it's just been, it's been very strange at this point. Are, are you guys still playing, like, in, in the area where you're at? Well, I mean, John moved to Vermont last summer, um, and Aaron is living once again in Kentucky. So at this point, it's more of a an email chain with ideas never cease but i mean that's that suits us too i mean it's such we're so slow Mm -hmm. and you know the the ideas at this point are so personal so related to things that we deal with uh primarily as being friends with one another yeah um and this is not in 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 a sense i still feel like it's like my solo stuff is just a side project from sort of earth okay and and this is like Son of Earth could never be like a recording project where you're sharing tracks through the e- through email and recording that way. You guys are like a live, you know, in the moment type group. Is that yeah, both? Okay. No, I mean I think it works best. Another Son of Earth record will not happen without the three of us being in the same room for a concentrated period of time. Okay. It doesn't mean it won't involve mail art but there's something with the the tension and the dynamic i mean as well it's actually this this leads in to the rest of what i would answer this question with which is you know i have a few duos i mean i've done a duo with dread fool in a live context i did a duo with diagram a i'm talking you know jeff hartford who is noise nomads and i are talking about a duo just this week Agreed to do a duo CD for uh, Erstwhile with Gabby Lasonsky. Um, Good area. Yeah. Nice. And so, like the idea of you know duos really interests me because two distinct personalities having to act in mm-hmm. concert with one another. Um, and so, I mean, you mentioned the Believers. That was two couples. You know, John and Anna are now married. With children that was my girlfriend at the time was was jesse swenson mm-hmm. um and that kind of put me in mind of something that brian chippendale said when i interviewed lightning bolt 
couple months ago for the wire and I was talking to him about the the potency of the duo as a format. And he you know, he sort of mentioned, well, people tend to couple up historically. Mm-hmm. Um, and so where some of our differs from that is that it's there's three of us. And so that leads to all kinds of petty infighting. Very loving. <laughs> right, but it, but that's I, mean, I think that's something that keeps that project alive is that it it has to be the three of us or, or it's nothing. But I do like that. I mean, I I enjoy working with other people um, because it calls my own ideas into question, and I actively welcome that. Yeah, where you you're feel a little bit more challenged, as you're saying, the infighting is challenging one another creatively. Right. You know, I mean, if somebody has one idea about what the session should be and then the other two start doing something goofy and it ruins the seriousness of what the other one was thinking so you have to reevaluate the entire dynamic start over again you know and you sort of work through these things and then eventually arrive at a batch of material that you can cut away at um, and I mean that's I think what keeps that project so at least the uh, intellectually fertile in my mind sure yeah well in terms of um like i guess both your music and and your writing are there certain things that you're currently working on that uh we'll see the light of day here i guess in the coming months that you can mention well you know actually this is something um i've got a new in the next issue of the wire i've written an essay about um david jackman okay yeah Actually, in, in that context, that sort of plays into another thing that I'm influenced by, I guess, would be his use of the same tapes over and over again in different contexts, you know, at different speeds, and across releases that are seemingly so disparate that you might not notice it. Um, but I really like that about his work. It's sort of like a puzzle that you can have a hard time putting back together. Mm-hmm. Um, other writing stuff? I mean, I'm scratching my head as to what to do for the next bull tongue. Um, <laughs> yeah. I can't wait. When's the next... Uh, uh, w- w- I mean, I know the last one just came out here in the last month or so, so you've got a little window here, huh? Yeah, well, you know, the deadline is at the end of the month, so i got to figure that out. Um, yeah. Now, is it going to be essentially the same contributors, or is it going to be, you know, kind of rotate? It seems like it's more or less the same bunch of people and then i mean he keeps asking new people every time and you know certain people can't do it one month or okay whatever um but i think the sort of course table seems to be even after only two issues somewhat um centered right um i mean i'm always i would really like to get my blog back to a place where it's more active it's difficult to do and now that i have sort of paying writing work taking me away from wistful ramblings about whatever my heart desires. Um, <laughs> and, you know, in terms of recordings, you know, Duo CD, that I mentioned with Gabby, the Jeff and I want to do a tape together. Um, got a few other tape labels asking me to do stuff. Um, maybe another Kai record. Um, Jason Leskley wants me to do a CD for his glistening examples label i mean yeah there's a lot of 
I have a big backlog. I was just going to say, it sounds like you got a lot. Of, you got some serious work to do here. Well, and I have a nine to five job, which is right. <laughs> We're going to have to cut this short. You got to get back to work here. <laughs> Man, I'm taking tomorrow off. <laughs> well, we do, we do have one okay. one more set of uh, tracks picked out, and I I think you know these three artists. Uh, I can definitely see how you, you know, why you chose them. People that are kind of, I think, well, personal friends and certainly influences, I would say, starting off yeah. with uh, the Pickle Factory here. Mm -hmm. And then you have Asmus. Oh, uh, yeah. Asmus Tykins. Pickle Factory. I mean, oh, no. Do you want to finish the set list before I start blabbing about the. Track? Oh, well. Pickle Factory. Uh, you have Pickle Factory. Is it Asmus Tykins? How do you how do you say his last name? I say Teachins. Teachins. Um, okay. I always just I always yeah. avoid the T. I don't know. Anyway, <laughs> uh, and then uh, Aaron Rosenblum, a close uh, a, yeah. associate of yours. So yeah, go ahead. What What do you want to share about these uh, tracks that you um, The Pickle Factory I like because it's one of the it's one of the easiest to listen to and most ignored swill radio record um and i you know obviously my relationship with Scott and carla is a very intimate one um and i really like oath this particular track i mean it, this was used in scott's film that i was in here's to love um and it also features mike popovich who is one of the cast of characters from johnstown pennsylvania where Scott and Carl are from, mm -hmm. um, who I think is, he's just an excellent bass player. He's a really good um, rhythmic and spatial sense. And I know on this one, he was playing purposefully just behind the beat to add to the melancholy of the whole thing. Mm -hmm. And so I thought, I mean, what better track does Scott and Carl choose? And, and he had played with um, uh, Scott in his first group correct sure yeah yeah um oh, I, well, a bunch of groups really story of failure uh why front mm -hmm. and he's actually now sort of the, the wing the wingman so to speak i don't know i don't know what sport that relates to um <laughs> but uh on the tobacconist stuff that's got oh okay yeah um and asmus that track actually this that I this one I used to keep on a tape and always have it with me at Son of Earth Strokes. I would play it really, really quietly just on a tape player while we played the set. Mm -hmm. Um and I just think it's a gorgeous piece of music. It's also a bonus track on a C D reissue of an L T, so I like that it's sort of this hidden kernel, you know, you know, on on a now unpopular, unhip format. Hey, I um, I still stand by CDs. I still get them. They have their they have their place, and it's, it's not a small one. <laughs> um, and Aaron, I mean, I've known Aaron. I was thinking before you called. I've known Aaron now for twenty years, and it's not. I mean, I don't want to get too sort of uh, weepy, but um, it's a very uh, consistently uh, inspiring relationship. I love hearing the stuff that he does on his own. And I love, he's one of the most beautifully argumentative people I've ever met. <laughs> um, and I think 
just talking and arguing with him about stuff and also hearing his own you know, very intimate results. His music has never been released. His solo music has never been released widely in, in any real way other than his own private releases. Mm-hmm. And what, what, but it's, I, mean, I, I just think it's excellent. What does this track come from then? Is this from like one of those uh, tape uh, releases? I can, I can CDR. Okay. Jesus, am I am I unable to remember the name off the top of my head? Um, among the Jackdaws. Okay. And I've always told him since he put out his first CDR when we were in college, which with the great title "Goodbye Baby Lady Blues." Um, <laughs> Told him I'm just waiting to do the liner notes for the the box that reissue of these things. There, so, yeah, yeah. <laughs> sort of. I mean, they're they're a really nice batch of bizarre, melancholy um, miniatures that I have the utmost respect for. So. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, leave it there. Yeah, we'll we'll jump into this uh, final set right. uh, with the pickle factory. And hey, thanks uh, so much, Matt, for. Uh, taking the time to speak with me thank you for indulging my ramblings yeah (laughs) so here is the pickle factory
All right, I want to thank Matt once again for taking the time to chat with me on this edition of the show. And before we end things here, I thought I'd play a few more tracks of his from some of his more recent albums. And I'm actually going to play something from that covers album that was mentioned during the course of our interview. The album was called I Couldn't Love You More. And I'm going to play his version of the great song from Bill Fay called I Hear You Calling from his Time of the Last Persecution album. I hear you calling from the river bank. I will be coming when the air is black.
right now, you're hearing a little excerpt from Crafting's High Hopes album. This is part two. And in front of that, you heard the title track from his Sweet Days of Discipline, Discipline, excuse me, CDR that came out on Kendra Steiner Editions a couple years ago. That's going to do it for uh, this edition of the show. And I want to mention that uh, to coincide with this 100th edition, I'm going to be starting up a little mini label of my own here called Round Bale Recordings. And we're going to have the first release coming out here very, very soon from the group Tilth that features a number of artists who've been on our show over the years. Nathan McLaughlin, Cody Yantis, and Joe Hubert. Uh, Three-fourths of the guys who were involved in the Line Drawings project, which uh, we had featured last year. And uh, excited to get this one out there. There'll be more information up on our website in the weeks ahead about the release and about ways to order that. But in the meantime, if you have any questions for me, you can shoot me an email at fffreakout at hotmail.com. And I'll also mention the website if you're wondering about uh, track list information. You can go to freeformfreakout.com to look up all the stuff on this show. But hope you enjoyed this one. And as always, thanks so much for listening. <laughs>